0: All my life, he has been faithful. All our life, he has been faithful. He has been good. God is good. Open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter number 26. Matthew, chapter 26, verse 26 to verse 30. That's Matthew chapter number twenty-six, verse twenty-six to verse thirty. And they were and as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it. And gave it to the disciples and said, take it, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink ye all of it, for this is my blood for the New Testament, which was shed for many, for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink, drink, it, it, drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. This is the reading of the word of the Lord.
1: I'll have- I'd like to take our text for today from the book of First Corinthians. Speaking of the same topic, First Corinthians, if you could follow with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and then also a piece of paper into Romans chapter 6. I will admit that this morning our sermon is going to be a little bit different than normal. Normally, you're used to us walking through a passage, and instead today I'll be speaking on the ordinances of the church as they were delivered unto us. I used to play soccer. I know it doesn't look like it, and I don't think I could run up and down a field twice anymore. Uh, Once would be enough. Uh, but I used to play soccer, and we, I played on a team, and it was in high school. Our team was very good. Uh, w- within our association, state association, uh, we were the champions two years in a row, and our team went on to play the state champions for other, te- other states, and we played very well in those other states as well. I was the goalkeeper. And two years out of four, I took the most valuable player for the state. I was very thankful for that. And I got to say, now, I know it doesn't look it, but back then, I was a lot lighter. There were moments that I wish, now, I wish that people had got that on video back then. Um, Because I had some of my coaches would say things like, that was not only a good block, it was a beautiful block. Uh, and you have watched soccer, I'm sure you have seen as goalkeepers throw their bodies. I cannot throw this body anymore. At 45, I would hurt myself in ways. I hurt myself falling asleep at night, uh, much less throw my body. okay. Um, but back then, uh, now it, within the team, within the team, everybody had a uniform, including myself. Now as goalkeeper, my uniform was different from theirs. They all had the same uniform. My uniform was different. I had a pair of, they all had short trousers with, uh, with, with shin guards. Uh, I had long trousers with pads in the sides, that's because you're gonna throw your body. Uh, most people didn't know that there were pads there, you couldn't see them, but I definitely felt them. I had pads inside of my long-sleeved shirts, pads in the elbows, uh, and, and in the gloves. Uh, my uniform as the goalkeeper for the team matched with the uniforms that everybody had. They all looked the same. I looked different. Mine was shiny, and my, my jersey was shiny with, a, with the racing stripes on it. And I uh, was captain of the team, all of those sort of things. Practiced with everybody. We did stretches all together. Now, could you imagine if we came for a game... And it's time for the game, and I just left my jersey at the house. Let's just say, for example, let's say I left my jersey at the house. I showed up, whatever, pair of jeans and a t-shirt, and I was like, coach, it's still me. I'm just going to play like this today. Now, can you imagine what the coach would say? Coach would say, get your jersey on, or you're not playing but coach, I stretched with everybody, and coach, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just as good in these jeans as I would have been in the jersey. Come on, coach. I can play. I stretch. I'm the captain of the team. And he would still say, get the jersey on, or you're not in the team. You see, what the jersey is, is the jersey is the outward display of what's going on on the inside. You know, on the inside, I'm a part of the team. The jersey does not make me a part of the team. The practicing with everybody else, the dedication with everybody else, the travel with everybody else, that's what makes you a part of the team, but the outward display is the jersey. That's what the ordinances are for the Christian. The ordinances are the outward display of an inward faith. What you've got going on when you place your trust in the Lord Jesus is you have an inward faith. And I'm going to be honest with you, I can't see that. Nobody else can see that. I see my own. I know my own depth of faith. You don't know my depth of faith. That's it on the inside. But when we go through the ordinances as a church body, others get to see that about us. Ordinances can be helpful for us as a church. In fact, I'll just go ahead and say this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 will help us to see it. And if you've got 1 Corinthians 11 there with you, uh, look at verse 2. This is the the time in the Scriptures that he uses the word ordinances. Here's uh, 1 Corinthians 11, and uh, I'll read verse 1. He starts with that. "...Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ." I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. In other words, Christ gave these ordinances to me. I give them to you. And in this chapter, he actually lists one of them. You can look down to verse 23. The connection here is the phrase, what the Lord gave to me. Uh, And now here it is in verse 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread, and we call that communion. And by the way, the phrase communion shows up here in 1 Corinthians 11. It's also called the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. Three different names that are used for it, and so we'll use those interchangeably today. And so we as a church have two ordinances from Scripture. The two ordinances are baptism and the Lord's supper. And so I plan on walking through those together with you today. Let us see what are these ordinances, why are they important in our lives, what are they and what are they not, and and I hope that you'll come away seeing them. I will, by way of introduction, say about the ordinances, they are rooted in the authority of the Scriptures. And so we don't take from outside traditions and say, well, the church has always done this, therefore we do this, uh, the scriptures are very clear. We believe, and we say it regularly, that the scriptures are our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. And so if those other ordinances that some churches practice are not found in scripture, we relegate those to be those traditions of the elders or those things that the church might have done, but yet we don't find it rooted in the scriptures. Christ said something to the Pharisees. He was very clear about this statement. He said to the Pharisees, you've added things on that I never intended. You've heaped burdens on men that they were not created to bear. And so when we say that the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, found in the Scriptures, uh, they're rooted in the authority of Scripture, I want us to see that we set aside those other ones that are not rooted in Scripture. Uh, Also, it reminds us, the ordinances serve as a reminder, they remind us of Christ's work on the cross. Both of them. When we have the Lord's Supper, and we say this is His body, or this is His blood, we're thinking of His work on the cross for us. Or, Or we talk about baptism, and we say buried with Him in baptism, and raised to walk in newness of life, we're thinking of His Death on the cross and His burial and His resurrection and how we associate with that in our own Christian lives. Again, an outward display of our inward faith. One more by way of introduction is I see that these ordinances help us to strengthen the unity in the church body. They strengthen the unity within the church body. When I get baptized, I'm associating with a group of believers. Or another way to think of this is when we have the Lord's Supper... Next week we'll do this. We'll have the table. We'll distribute the elements. And as we take the Lord's Supper, when I say this helps to strengthen our unity within the church, it's very hard for me to hold the body of Christ in the form of a bread. It's hard for me to hold and think of what He did on the cross for me and hold bitterness against one of my Christian brothers or sisters in the church. This is a manifestation in my life that he's made a difference in my life, and I'm ready to put aside differences between us. You see, the ordinances of the church serve very well to help with the unity within the church. So let me take a couple of minutes and walk through, we'll walk through the Lord's Supper first, and then we'll walk through baptism second, these ordinances for the church. So we'll walk through the Lord's Supper. You've got 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll start reading in verse 23, and we'll make some comment. Here's 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 23. I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And then verse 24 uh, sorry, verse 25. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul is recounting the actions of the Lord Jesus at the Last Supper. I might just ask like this, how many of you have seen the painting, Leonardo da Vinci, the painting, The Last Supper? How many of you have seen that painting? It's it's a quite popular, famous painting. I just want to go ahead and just put this out there because I'm trying to push back against the traditions of the elders and go with what does Scripture historically say. And so when you look at the painting of The the Last Supper, I, I propose to you that that's nothing like what it was. Sure, there were 12 disciples, apostles. Yes, there was Jesus. But they were not sitting in chairs at a table along a long line as if they'd been brought to a conference room. All right, This was not how they sat in first century Israel. That's not how they... That's, that's 1400s Europe. <laughs> Sit at a chair at a table. No, if you look at how did they eat at a meal together that would have been in a shape of a U... And they would not have been sitting with their feet under the table. Instead, they would have had their feet away from the table, reclined on pillows, facing inward. You remember Jesus had his feet washed by the lady, John chapter 11, chapter 10, something like that. The lady comes in with her tears and washes his feet. His feet are away from the table. Your feet are considered to be unclean in that culture. You don't bring your feet up near the food. And so... As I think through things like this, and Jesus and the disciples would not have all sat on one side of the table for a, a selfie to get, get their picture taken together. All right, this is they're, they're in a U, and there's Jesus in the middle. He's the one that's the focus of the meal. And he's partaking of the Passover meal together with his brethren. And they're there, and he leads them, and yet he's taking them through the Passover meal that they most likely have had for multiple years in a row now but this one's significant. In the book of John, he takes several chapters, four chapters plus, in order to expound to them. I'm the vine and you're the branches. I'm going to send the comforter, he'll be with you. And he speaks to them on a very intimate level. The longest discourse that you get in all of the Gospels comes from the night where Jesus sits with his disciples at the Last Supper. And in that discussion, he talks with them and he says, the bread is now going to be a picture. When you partake of this in the future, the bread is going to be a picture of my body that's broken. The the grape juice, the wine is going to be a picture of my blood that's going to be shed for you. And he makes these statements for them and he explains their significance for them. As I look through the Scriptures, this. Idea of the Lord's Supper, it appears five times in Scripture. It's three times in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, all recorded. Jesus saying things like, this is my body, which is broken for you. John expounds on the bigger picture, but doesn't drill down on that moment. The Apostle Paul speaks of it twice. Once here in 1 Corinthians 11, the other one is in 1 Corinthians 10. So it's just a page away. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 10. I want you to see this one. Here's 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are partakers of that one bread. The word communion, it literally means the sharing of feelings, especially on a spiritual level. The sharing of feeling. Communion. You can hear it in the root word. Commune. We're going to commune together. We com- in communion, we come around the Lord's table as it were. We come around that with a sharing of feelings. What do we feel? We feel His broken body. And in the moments of us taking the Lord's Supper together as a church, we think on the Lord's death. I hope that in those moments... That you think back on, He went to the cross for my sin. That's a moment of deep reflection. And what is the feeling that should come out of that? Oh, gratitude. Lord, thank You for what You've done so that I can be made right with God. For without Him, I'm hopelessly lost in my sin. And oh, the feeling of communion as we as brothers and sisters come around the table. This is a beautiful thing. And I see a reflection here that goes in three different directions. I see a reflection that goes past, present, and future. And I'll show them to you. Here's past. Look at verse 24 again. When he'd given thanks, he'd break it and said, Take, eat, this is my body. That's in the past. That's what he's done for us. Or verse 25, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it. In remembrance of me. So both times, in the body and in the blood, the bread and the cup, we're remembering Him. We're remembering His death. His suffering in my place. And as you have communion, a shared feeling, you'll have a desire to remove sin from your life. Nothing between me and the Savior who took my sin. And nothing between me and my brothers whose sins have been taken. So I reflect into the past, and then I also reflect to the present. So look at verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. How foolish would it be as a believer to say, I'm following Jesus, and I'm thankful for His death on the cross. How foolish would it be for me to take that thing that is a picture of His broken body, put that bread between my teeth and crush it, while I hold on to the sin that put Him on the cross. That's foolish. And so He says, in verses 27 and 28, He says, be careful, brothers and sisters, when you come to the table, be careful that you're not taking unworthily. Another way to say that, take a picture of Christ's blood that's spilled, shed for you and I. And we would say that that blood at the foot of the cross would be sacred blood. And how heretical would it be for you with dirty boots to trample that blood? Our sin is what caused that blood to flow from our Savior's side. And so he says with warning and caution in the present... Verse 27 and 28, think before you take. Don't hold on to your sin, push away from that sin. And the command here is don't push away from the table, push away from your sin. I see so often, I see so often this happens as we have brothers and sisters that come for the service and they say, Pastor, today I just can't partake at the table. You know what they're doing? They're pushing away from the table so that they can hold on to their sin. Oh, remember the words that are written for us so clearly. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, brothers and sisters, as we reflect upon His death on the cross in the present, reflect on it in a way that says He has forgiven me if I will but confess. I can be made right with Him again. Oh, the Lord's table is profitable for us as we commune. On the past, his work; on the present, and then on the future. And I love this one. I believe it's in verse twenty-five. Look at verse twenty-five. I uh, sorry, verse twenty-six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. So I see us reflecting on his death, past and then what does it do for us present but then also i think future and the future is seen here in verse 26 as often as you eat the bread it's not commanded to take it at a regular interval it doesn't have to be done weekly or monthly i think if you go to annually it's a bit too far we try to do it quarterly for as often as you do this you you do it you do it what you do show the lord's death till he come And so it's a reminder that He did go to the cross for us, but that His work is not completed yet. He still is going to come back and take us to be with Him forever and ever. I look forward to that day. And so practically, what does this look like? I don't, as some would, I don't stand here with a wafer and put it in your mouth. But instead, practically speaking, when we take the Lord's Supper, if you've never done this with us before, I would encourage you to think deeply on it this week. As we take the Lord's Supper this next Sunday, the pastoral staff, the deacons will join us, and we will distribute to the body. And the way that that will look is we will pass the bread. It will be in a plate. And the plate will go back and forth just like you're normally seeing. The offering plate goes back and forth. It'll be a different plate. You'll take of that piece of bread and I would encourage you to hold it. Don't take it right away. Hold it. It's not a time to scroll through social media or catch up on your words with friends. But instead it's a time to reflect on what has the Lord done for me with His body? Where am I with Him with my sin? Remembering that you, if in that moment the Lord brings to your mind, oh, there is a sin, commission or omission, that you need to get cleared up with Him. He's just a prayer way. And then you're cleared up with Him, and you're going to partake, and you're looking forward to the day that you will be with Him, not just in a picture, but you will be bodily with the Lord. And you partake. You partake. We'll do the same with the grape juice as well. We move from this ordinance of the Lord's Supper into an ordinance of baptism. So, if you would come with me over to Romans chapter 6, I'd like to read verses 3 and 4 for you. Romans chapter 6, and as I think of the book of Romans and the layout and the way that the gospel is presented in the first four chapters. Then chapter 5 comes into the struggle with sin. Chapter 6, I can find a great hope in that struggle against sin because of the fact that when we are made right with God through salvation, we trust the Lord Jesus. He places us in Christ. This is a beautiful thing for the believer. You're in Christ. If you're a believer today, you're in Christ And you're associated, Romans chapter 6 tells us, you're associated with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. The picture is laid out here in verses 3 and 4 in baptism. This is our other ordinance for the church. Here's Romans chapter 6 and verse number 3. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore, We are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Again, it's an outward display of our inward faith. So what is baptism? As an ordinance of the church, baptism is an outward display as you, a believer, having placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, inwardly, on the outside, you are now being baptized to show others, I've put my trust in Christ. It's an outward display of what happened on the inside. This is a truth. It's, uh, the word baptism or baptize is transliterated. You might be familiar with the word translated. With 800 languages in our nation, we need to do a lot of translation. A transliteration is like translation, but a little bit different, and I'll explain. You've seen it, you just maybe don't know the name. Transliteration is when one language has a word, and you go to the other language, and the word is not there. You don't have a word for it. And so what you do is you take the word in the one language, and you make it as close as possible, and you essentially introduce a word in the other language. Words that we have that would be, here's a word in English. I'm going to use pigeon because all of us are, are, are there. So in English, you have the word tree, and in pigeon, we have dy. You follow me? It's There's a word in pigeon. You follow that? In English, we have the word dog, but in pigeon, it doesn't change to a new word it just changes spelling. We now take the spelling and adapt it to pigeon spelling. You follow me? Dog, dog. Pig, pig. Talk, talk. And the list goes on. You follow me? That's transliterated. Baptism. In Greek, the word is baptizo. Baptizo is the word in Greek. In English, there was no word for baptize. And so what they did was they just transliterated it. They went, okay, we now it's baptizo in Greek, it's baptized in English. It's the same word. There is no translation to a different word. But it does carry meaning. And so if the meaning behind it is to immerse. So the word baptize when in Greek, the meaning behind it is to immerse to immerse. But somehow as we've come into modern day, we've added some different meanings that just weren't there in the scriptures. And so when I look at the scriptures, I look at the scriptures and what was the original meaning? The meaning was to immerse, to put under the water. And the picture is here in verse number four. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. The picture is being buried. Or when we bury someone, we immerse them under the ground. And so the picture is the picture of Christ being baptized or buried. And then He raises from the dead. You see that again in verse number 4. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, so... Also, we should walk in newness of life. And so as you think of this picture, outward picture of being buried and being raised again, going under the water and coming back out of the water, I want you to think with me of some of those who in other generations or other locations, this moment has been costly for them for you and I we gather. We don't even have to do it outside anymore. We used to do it outside up the hill, but now we don't even have to do that. How costly is this? You're among friends. Think with me as the guy who became the apostle Paul, Saul. When he went to Damascus with his original purpose of going to Damascus to persecute Christians, and arrest Christians and drag them to prison. Can you just imagine the guys who went to Damascus with him did not get saved. He did. He got saved and he got baptized in Damascus. Do you know how costly that was? There was no church building with a baptistry. It just didn't exist. Paul got baptized, I don't know, in the Mediterranean Sea or in a river there or some creek, I have no idea, but it was a public thing, and I can just imagine as he got baptized, there would have been people on the side who saw him and thought, well, that's significant And down throughout history, and in other locations around the world today, there are people who publicly make a statement with going under the water that says, I'm being associated with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Come what may, if I have to carry a persecution, let it be so. And so for you and I, we're gifted with a very easy way, but for others, it's not always been that easy. You see, it's an outward display of my inward faith. And I want to just take a few minutes and do a quick walk through the book of Acts so that you can see the times when we have statements about baptism. So come back to Acts chapter 2, and I'll do this quickly. While you're turning, I think of the example of the Lord Jesus baptized in the Jordan River. At first, when Jesus came to John, John was giving baptisms. Jesus came to John and John said, no, hang on. I don't baptize you. I'm not worthy to tie your shoes, much less baptize you. And Jesus made a statement that day. Essentially, it was, all those that will come along after me and follow me, I will command that they be baptized, so I will be the first one. It is commanded that we follow all steps of righteousness. And so Jesus, with that first display, and then before he, before he ascended up to heaven, His death, burial, and resurrection, His statement, this was Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, "...Go ye therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world." And you see the command coming from the Lord Jesus he displayed it at the beginning of his ministry and then at the end of his earthly ministry he commanded it and the command is have believers show outwardly that they're believers that's what we're doing when we get baptized we're showing other people i've got a faith going on on the inside and i want you guys to see it And so I want to just take a historical run through the book of Acts, and I want you to see a trend here. Watch for the trend. I'll go ahead and give you a clue on what you're supposed to look for. Look for when these people got baptized. Look for when they got baptized. So here's Acts 2 and verse number 41. This is the day of Pentecost, and Peter has just preached. Here's Acts 2 and verse 41. Then they... That gladly received his word were baptized. In the same day, there were added unto them about three thousand souls. These people, three thousand of them, received the word, and then they were baptized. Come over to Acts chapter eight, verse thirty-five. Acts chapter eight and verse thirty-five is a different story. The narratives that run through the book of Acts they are chronological, and, and uh, yet they can also teach us some things about how God wants to do things. Here's Acts chapter 8 and verse 35. This is the time that Philip, the evangelist, ran into the Judean desert, and he shared the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. This is Acts chapter 8 and verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture, that was the book of Isaiah 53, and he preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What does hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, verse 37, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. You see the Ethiopian eunuch, he put his trust in the Lord Jesus, and then he got baptized in some pool of water or river that was there along the side of the road. Now Acts chapter 9 and verse 17. My Bible is just across the page. This is right after Saul got got saved. The Lord had used a light to knock him off of his donkey on the road to Damascus, and he was blinded in that event. He "...made his way into Damascus and waited for three days." And now verse 17. "...and Ananias went his way, entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, said, "'Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way, thou camest, has sent me, thou mightest receive thy sight, and be filled with the Holy Ghost.'" And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received his sight forthwith, and arose, and was baptized. Do you see the theme yet? Do you see this trend? Received the Word, trusted Jesus, and then baptized. It doesn't end there. Look at chapter 10 and verse 47. This is Cornelius, the Roman centurion. Amazing story that goes all through chapter 10. Now it comes to the end in chapter 10 in verse 46. The end of verse 46. uh, Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized? In other words, is there a good reason that Gentiles should not get baptized? Because us Jews, we're getting baptized. How about the Gentiles? Is that okay? They have received the Holy Ghost as we have. Verse 48, And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and then they prayed him to tarry certain days. A few chapters before we see baptism again. Chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 and verse number 14. This is the time when the Apostle Paul now takes the gospel across from Asia to Europe. This is a lady, first lady, first person in Europe that's recorded as having put her trust in the Lord Jesus. This is in Macedonia. Acts chapter 16 and verse 14. A certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us. I want to just make a point here. Notice she worshipped God, but she has not yet trusted Jesus. Let me let that sink in. It's possible... It's possible to believe in God without trusting in Jesus. We made point of this several weeks ago in the book of James. The devils believe in God, but they don't trust Jesus. Here's Lydia. I don't think she was a devil. Here's Lydia. She's worshipped God, and she heard us. In her heart, the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. In other words, Paul taught her. Jesus saves. And she said, okay, I trust Jesus. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us. And then she says, hey, hang out with me here at my house and stay for a while. We see the same trend. Put her trust in Christ and then gets baptized. Same chapter down to verse 30. This is Paul and Silas in Philippi. They'd been imprisoned and the earthquake breaks the prison open. Verse 30. This is the prison keeper. Verse 30, he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And that house, he's not saying if you believe, then your whole house will be saved. It's believe and you'll be saved and your house can do the same thing. Believe and be saved. Now verse 31 and they, uh, verse 32. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that was in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. There's two more that I want to show you, but I hope that you're seeing the theme. Over and over through the book of Acts, we see people put their trust in the Lord Jesus, and that's followed with baptism. Here's chapter 18. Look at chapter 18 and verse number 8. Paul is at Corinth here. Beautiful picture of how, the God, how God did his work in Corinth. Uh, they go, Paul went into Corinth like he did at many other places, and he preached in the synagogue first. And a lot of times people would get saved from the synagogue. These were people who were following the Old Testament law, and then they would find out that Jesus saves, and they don't have to do those things anymore. They can put their trust in Jesus to be made right with God. And not only did these people come to trust the Lord Jesus, but also the guy who was the leader of the synagogue. His name was Crispus. Here's verse 8. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. He saw it again. Same trend. Now, chapter 19, I think, is one of the most helpful. It's going to be the last one I show you, but I think it's the most helpful, because these guys had been baptized previously. For those of you that might have question, you might say, well, I got baptized once another time, but then I put my trust in Christ. Do I need to get baptized again? You'll notice that the trend that happened all throughout the book of Acts, the trend was These people got saved, and then they got baptized. And here is an example of someone who had been baptized, in fact, a whole group of people that had been baptized previously, and now the question is, should they get baptized again? I'll go ahead and give you my own personal experience. As a young man, I was just a child, and I saw all my friends get baptized, so me too, I went and got baptized. But a good eight, nine years later, The Lord, through the Holy Spirit, did a work in my heart where I realized I needed to put my trust in the Lord Jesus, not in the things that I do. And so I put my trust in the Lord Jesus. And I'll say my testimony is very similar to these in Acts chapter 19. So let's see what happened with them. Here's Acts chapter 19. Paul just found some disciples here. Uh, They're in Ephesus. Here's chapter 19 and verse 1. It came to pass that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples. Don't be mistaken, the word disciple does not always mean follower of Jesus. He's going to explain. He said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We've not so much as heard whether there be a Holy Ghost. We don't know what you're talking about, Paul. So here's the problem. You receive the Holy Spirit when you put your trust in the Lord Jesus. The book of Ephesians is very clear about that. So when you put your trust in the Lord Jesus, you are put in Christ, and he puts his Holy Spirit in you. And so for these guys to know nothing about the Holy Spirit, there's a problem. And Paul picks up on it very quickly. He goes, hang on a second. If you don't know about the Holy Spirit, then there's something going on here, and he drills down on it. So he asked them, verse 3, he said unto them, unto what then were you baptized? And they said, John's baptism. Well, that explains things. Uh, Let me help you historically. There was about a six-month period at the beginning or before Jesus' baptism, or Jesus' earthly ministry, there was about a six-month period there that John was doing baptisms at the River Jordan. John stood there. He was doing the right thing. He stood along the banks of the Jordan River, and he called out, Repent. Repent of your sins. Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Show that you are repentant before God by getting baptized. He did that for six months before Jesus showed up. When Jesus showed up, his message changed. His message changed from be baptized for the remission of your sins. His message changed to behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So he started pointing at Jesus at that point. But for six months before that, he doesn't know what's coming. He's just baptizing people in the Jordan River. During that period, there's a guy named Apollos that comes along. You can read about this back in chapter 18. I won't take the time. I'm just going to give you an overview. Apollos must have come through in, 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 along the River Jordan and seen John doing this baptism. I don't know. Maybe even Apollos himself got baptized by John. But then Apollos leaves before Jesus starts his ministry apollos goes on to go out into the european regions he goes out into the asian regions and he does the best he knows what to do he goes and tells people you need to get baptized i got baptized by john you need to get baptized and so here's a group of disciples in ephesus disciples they're followers of god but they don't know about jesus And so here you have a group of disciples that have gotten baptized to the baptism of John. Why? Because they don't have the full picture. They don't know that Jesus went to the cross. So Paul comes along and he finds them and he goes, You guys are disciples. This is awesome. Tell me about the Holy Spirit and what he's done in your life. And they go, Huh? Holy Spirit? We don't know what you're talking about. What's the Holy Spirit? He goes, Well, Jesus? And they go, We don't know Jesus. So hang on a second, what were you guys baptized to? That we were baptized to John. What's he tell them to do? Look at verse 4. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. In other words, John's baptism is, you need, you need to have your sins taken away, and how are your sins going to take, be taken away? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the answer. And so here in Ephesus, these poor disciples, Mahdi, they've been baptized and they think they're doing fine, but they have been missing out on the big picture because they haven't heard about Jesus yet. And when they heard this, verse 5, watch. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I think that that, Acts chapter 19, is the strongest proof that if you've gotten baptized at some point in your life, perhaps you were following God, but you haven't fully understood what Jesus did for you on the cross. And now, when you put your trust in the Lord Jesus, you have fully understood, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I trust the Lord Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. God God put Jesus on the cross so that my sin could go on Jesus. And when I trust Jesus, He gives me His righteousness. That's the gospel. And so when I put my trust in the Lord Jesus, I'm a believer. I get the Holy Spirit. And that all happens on the inside. How do I show people it on the outside? I associate with Him in baptism. Buried with Him in baptism. Raised to walk in newness of life. You see, it's an outward display of my inward faith so in summary what's baptism look like practically after salvation under the water uh, very practical after salvation under the water and so in case i didn't answer your question yeah i got baptized at some point in my life and then whatever it was like but now i got saved i put my trust in jesus do i look back on that one well the whole picture of baptism is me showing others that i've put my trust in jesus so if that one wasn't that, then this one should be that. And so what do you do? When, this isn't in my notes. When I was ministering in Kodidanga, there were a lot of people that had an idea, and they would publicly tell others that if you got baptized once, and then you got baptized a second time, that you would go crazy. By Bayulongonga. I don't know where they got that, but one of the biggest helps for our church in Kodiranga was when I was able to tell them, brothers and sisters, God used my life experience because I got baptized once, and then I got saved, and then I got baptized. Somehow God allowed that in the providence of God in my life to be an example for them. Suddenly, all of those fears just fell off to the side. Second, so follow Jesus in believer's baptism. I think of these two pictures, the ordinances that God has given us, they're not required for our salvation. That's certainly true. They're not required. God isn't sitting up in heaven almost with your na- name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You've put your trust in Jesus and He's picked up, your, up His pen waiting for you to get baptized and then He'll sign No, that's not how it works. They're not required for your salvation. It's not required for you to be baptized. But it's a great outward display so that others can know what's going on in your faith. You put your trust in the Lord Jesus. You're welcome to sit on the sidelines of life for the rest of your life. You put your trust in Jesus. I would question whether you really put your trust in Jesus if you're just sitting on the sidelines. But if you wanted people to know, oh, you would follow the commands of our Lord, the ordinances that He's placed for us as a church. Those are outward displays. Becky and I have been married now for 24 years, 5 months, and 20 days. I did the math this morning. I don't count every day. In May, we'll be celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary. And on the day that we got married, she gave me a ring. I gave her a ring. She still wears it. I still wear it. Now, I don't wear this ring because I want to fall into condemnation of James chapter 2, the guy that comes into church with a gold ring and goodly apparel. That's not why I wear that. (laughs) I wear it because it's a symbol. It's a symbol of the fact that I'm married to Becky. I've worn it for almost 25 years and I honestly I can't even get it off anymore. It's stuck on there. I can slide it just a little bit and when I slide it I can't pull it up my fat knuckles now. When I slide it down a little bit. There's like a permanent mark underneath on my skin where it's been there for so long. I could say she's branded me. <laughs> and you know the wedding ring is a symbol that I'm married does the wedding ring make me married? No. I don't have to have the wedding ring to know that I'm married. If somehow I lost it, these fat knuckles would have to get skinny real fast. If somehow I lost the ring, we still have a marriage certificate from the state of Kentucky that says we're still married. We still have joint bank accounts. That's another topic for another sermon. There's a lot of things that we still live in the same house and she still lets me drive her truck. There's a lot of things that say we're still married. It's just a symbol. And this symbol is an outward display of what's going on in my heart towards this lady. Namely, I love her. And the ordinances are that way as well. The ordinances are our way on the outward to display that we love our Savior. Coming back to the ring, marriage is more than just the ring. There's a lot of other ways that people can know that I'm married. Like I don't flirt with other women. and I make a big deal about being with my wife. I enjoy spending time with her. We talk a lot. If I were to take that analogy and put it in your Christian life, I hope that the ordinances are not the only way that people would know that you're a believer. I hope that there would be a lot of other displays in your life. Like you like to be around your Savior. And you don't flirt with sin. And you like to talk to him a lot. I hope that you've got a lot of outward manifestations, outward displays of your inner faith. And I hope that you love the Lord Jesus in a way that makes you want to fulfill and follow his commands to be baptized and to partake at the Lord's table. So please don't push away from the table. Pull up to the table and embrace our Savior. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to spend some time together with our church this morning. Walking through the ordinances that you've given us in the scriptures. I hope that they've been clear this morning. I pray that you would help us to be faithful, to use these outward displays well. Thank you for giving them to us in your word. I thank you for the body of Christ that you've given us, the ability for us to rejoice together with brothers and sisters. For it's in your beautiful name I ask these things. Amen.